Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Taylor Harris. She's a writer and mom of three living in Pennsylvania. Her first book, This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown, was published in January 2022 to rave reviews. This Boy We Made is a story of a black mother bumping up against the limits of everything she thought she believed about science and medicine, about motherhood, and about her faith in search of the truth about her son. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me. You say in the first pages of this book, which I loved, is that this book is about a day where motherhood divided into before and after. Can you tell us a little bit about that day? Sure. So, you know, before that day, we all have things that we go through as mothers that are new or difficult or challenging. But I sort of felt like before that day, I had somewhat of a handle, (laughs) as much as you can have a handle on motherhood. But that day, April 1st, I'll never forget April Fool's Day, which just sort of felt a little bit evil. Um, (laughs) My son was 22 months and he woke up in his crib. He shared a room with his big sister and I just remember my husband bringing him to me, sort of like, here, you want to take him? He woke up, but he was just sort of staring. He didn't call for us. Tofs is his name. He used to call for us and say, babe, babe, which is what my (laughs) husband called me (laughs) instead of mommy sometimes. But he said nothing. And he's just sort of there, but he's not vomiting. He has no fever. So I take him into my arms. I didn't really co-sleep, but I took a nap with him in my bed because I was exhausted. And at some point, we both wake up and he's just chugging water from his little camelback water bottle. And I notice it seems like his heart is like beating out of his chest. And I'm like, maybe I'm making this up. He seems to be okay, other than the fact that he's tired. And what happens is I take him out to sort of our living area. I try to feed him. He just sort of shakes his head, won't take anything, just keeps drinking. And I think the turning point is like, I lay him down on the ground just to change his diaper, which you do every morning. And he falls back asleep after that nap. And I just look at my husband 
we were living in an apartment at UVA at that point where we both went to college and he was teaching. And so we hadn't left for the morning yet. And I just said, I think we need to call. Like, I think we need to call the doctor. And inside I'm thinking, oh my gosh, am I overreacting? Are they going to be like, oh, this crazy mom, like he doesn't have a fever. He's not vomiting. He's not shaking. What's going on? And I told them what was going on. And they said, you know, we can see you almost right away. I think it's we talk so much about investigating that moment on the podcast in terms of I recently had an experience where my son was having stomach pains and I told him to cut it out for several almost a day, let's be honest, until finding out that it was his appendix and uh, then kind of got a talking to about why I should have taken him in earlier. And I think it's something that you explore in the book and something that we all can relate to this feeling of like, but am I overreacting? Am I lost in this thing? Am I going to be that mom if I suddenly bring a kid in? But you do take him in. We do. I do take him in. And the doctor is another black woman who works in the practice. She's not his sort of official doctor, but she's part of the team. And we've met her before and she's really kind. And I look up to her and I respect her. And I um, I talk about that in the book. And she just sort of looks him over and says, you know, is there any chance he got into, you know, something poisonous, any of your medicine, something under the sink? You know, and your heart stops. Mm. You're like, did I miss something? And my husband had taken a nap one day. And so you see in the book, I even go through that. I'm like, when he fell asleep after work that one day, you know, and the kids were just sort of playing, is there any way that Toph's, you know, got into something under the cabinet? And I tell her that. I mean, she doesn't seem too worried. And she says, you know what? Why don't you go home? And if he doesn't get any better, bring him back in for blood work. So we go out, you know, I have that monstrous like double stroller that I just, I don't even know how I made it through those early years. So we're (laughs) like steering that thing out. I get to the van and my husband, Paul calls and he's like, have you left? And I said, you know, yeah, we're, you know, getting him into the car. And he's like, they want you to turn around and go back in. And so this doctor had had sort of this mother's hunch, I guess, you know what, why don't you come back and take the blood work now and we'll have the results in a few hours. And that became critical because a few hours later, they get the labs back and his blood sugar at that moment, you know, had been 27. They said so low that they thought it was a mistake, right? And not just his blood sugar, but other things as well. Like this, there must be some mistake in this blood work. It doesn't compute. Right. She says, we're not even sure if it's correct, but you need to get him to the ER right now. And I'm like, I don't even, what do you mean it's not correct? I don't even know what that could mean. And so, yeah, we rush into the ER and people are waiting for us. And that's kind of when you know, you're like, okay, it's not me over (laughs) This isn't my anxiety unless everybody's got anxiety. (laughs) This is real. And they rushed them back and they just start, you know, what they do in ERs is to stabilize him, get his blood sugar back up. In this moment, you talk about in the book about being an anxious person and that you say that you're built for flight or flight. And I think you identify that moment where sort of the coin drops and like, okay, this is it. Sounds like this might have been sort of that moment, like they're waiting for us. Oh, this is bad. And I'm not making this up. And I'm not catastrophizing. And in that moment, because you are built for this, 
you almost like flip into another part of your brain, right? You can access like a deeper, what is it? What do you access in that time that you think sort of builds you for this moment? It's some sort of like strange, like robot woman that I've got inside of me who usually overreacts, but in these times sort of is able to move quickly and efficiently. And so right after I get that call, I'm the one getting the diaper bag, the double stroller, the two kids, my purse, you know, anything that we'll need, right? And I'm out the door in like five minutes. And when we're there at the hospital, (laughs) I'm the one, you know, our address is, here's our insurance card, even as the person is waiting to take us back. You know, I'm going to like check all the boxes. I'm going to be like the straight A student. I'm going to do everything right. And I think, you know, sort of, even if it's on a subconscious level, sort of deep down in there somewhere is this idea that if I'm just efficient, and if I do everything right, like I will, you know, whether it's I will get the good grade as a kid growing up as a mom, it's like, I will save my kid, I will find the answer, like, I will win, we will overcome. Well, and I also think we have as moms, a tremendous amount of free floating anxiety that doesn't really have a vessel for it, you know, and this kind of constant sense of what if, what if, oh, check this, oh my gosh, and that I have found in the moments where things go fantastically wrong, that I am my best self sometimes. Like, oh, this is what we trained for, mom. We're here. Like, I know how to answer the questions. I know how to fill out the forms. And to have something actually happening sometimes conversely, even though it's terrible that something's happening that's, you know, worrisome and negative. It's kind of like we put our capes on and we're ready to go for that moment. Yeah, no, that's so good. I think this is what I trained for is is the perfect way of saying it. It's like I've been expecting this and, and here it is. One time my son, he was about three, was I couldn't find him at the playground and I couldn't find him. And just in that moment of like, he's not here. He's gone. He's fine. He's in high school now. But that moment where I turned to a stranger and said, he's not here. I've been looking for him for 20 minutes and hearing her say, somebody called 911. And just like this, like, oh, I've been training my, my anxious mom brain has been waiting for this moment. And here it is. My kid has been taken. And you, yeah, you do drop into this weird calm that I think anybody listening has identified with these moments. I found my kid 10 minutes later and there was an easy resolution. With you, it's been a little more complicated. I think we should take a break when we come back more about what happened next in Taylor's story. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different and fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. We're talking to Taylor Harris. She is the author of This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood genetics and facing the unknown. So you have Toast in the emergency room. He's two years old. There is a team of people working on him and they seem uncertain. And what is that like for you to see the medical professionals say like, uh, we don't know what this is either? Well, so as we were discussing almost that robotic mode I go into, in some ways I'm efficient and other ways I think to get through it, I, you know, maybe I'm so narrow focused, like there were things I didn't hear and that my husband later had to tell me. So apparently someone called out, why isn't he seizing? Because they thought his blood sugar was still at 27. I never heard that. I don't even remember how long it took for my husband to tell me that and me to say, oh my gosh, (laughs) how did I miss that? You know? And so that's part of it is that I sort of have this weird tunnel vision. And so they come in like a football team. They're working on him. He takes, you know, they're giving him dextrose to boost his glucose. He starts eating popsicles. And it's sort of like you see this collective, okay, like we don't know exactly what's wrong, but he's stable you know, blood sugar in the 70s, 80s. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to keep them overnight just for observation, run some labs, and then you guys will probably get to go home. And so that's what happens. They give him a room. It becomes this like test for me to try to trap his little baby urine in a plastic bag, <laughs> which somehow... Like, I love that they give the mom these jobs too. They're like, can you just collect? I'm like, excuse me. No, I cannot. <laughs> And I'm like the mom who like doesn't even like do crafts with my kids. Like I can barely <laughs> fold paper in half. So I'm like, what do you what I don't understand. And so we eventually get the urine sample and all these blood samples. And they come in the next day and they've got this poor medical student. She might be like a second year med student. I still see her with like red hair and she's got these little note cards. And it's like this scene out of a movie or like Grey's Anatomy where she's like reading her notes and she's sort of performing for her superiors, Mm -hmm. but also giving us a message about how our son is. And she basically says in so many words, they don't know. It could be this thing called ketotic hypoglycemia, which they give you, you know, that's the diagnosis by exclusion. If they can't find anything else, then it's probably this thing that he'll probably grow out of and just give them bedtime snacks. And so we're like, okay, we can do that. And then they say, oh, and we did send off some other blood work to like the Mayo Clinic. You'll get that back in a couple of weeks. And the last thing I'll mention is they say, oh, and that urine sample that you worked so hard to get. They don't actually say you worked so hard to get, but they say that urine sample, like we didn't get that back. 
and my husband digs a little bit and it basically comes out that they lost it, that it was sent downstairs without an order. It got thrown away after trying so hard to collect (laughs) his urine. And there's really no apology. It's just sort of brushed over. And that's one of those points in the book where I say, like, you know, if my husband had been a well-known white professor in a college town, would we have been treated any differently? Would that apology have come more upfront without us having to push and dig for it? Let's talk a little bit about that, because it's a whole other layer in this book that you are navigating this as a black woman navigating this system. And it means that you constantly have to wonder, you say you shoulder the burden of discerning the why, right? Why is, mm-hmm. is this doctor telling me this? Because she's making assumptions about what kind of mother I am? Would it be different? What are the effects on you as a black woman of having to navigate all of that and try to, you know, code read that on top of all the concern that you're having? Yeah, you know, I wonder, Claudia Rankin and Citizen asked the question of sort of, you know, when we deal with these microaggressions, or when we're questioning why somebody said this to us or treated us a certain way, she sort of stops and she's like, you know, is it coding in my DNA? Is it affecting me on a cellular level? And so the honest truth is, I can't know for sure. But when you look at sort of my anecdotal experiences and experiences of other black moms and parents, and then you look at the statistics of how many black women die giving birth or how many black babies don't make it or how, you know, even a women are, they fare better when their surgeon is a woman, right? And so you're factoring all of these things in. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I can't tell you exactly how it affects me, but I can, I am absolutely sure that it's a sort of burden that I carry and that it's not completely irrational. For our listeners, maybe more so for our white listeners, this idea of discrepancies in healthcare that are racially based is something that was not maybe on people's radar. I think it kind of came a little bit higher into the national consciousness when Serena Williams had a lot of complications with her birth and people began talking about the fact that black maternal outcomes in hospitals were different than white maternal outcomes. This is a statistical reality. The experience that's described in this book, this is something that is statistically borne out. Taylor, you're right about it so incisively in this moment that when you say, what about the urine sample? It's like, oh, yeah, we don't have that. And that your husband pushes, but he really sort of clocks how he's doing that. What do you mean you lost it? Mustn't seem too aggressive, mustn't seem too angry. But wait a minute, we have the right to know. And that any parent in those situations, when your kid is in the hospital and they're not giving you information and you you need to push We can all identify with that, but it's uniquely difficult when you're a person of color. Right. It's the fact that, you know, he comes in wearing a blazer on purpose, right? Like he doesn't get the sort of privilege of coming in in some jeans and an old like garage band t-shirt because he had to rush his kid in or, you know, when he comes the next day and brings my daughter in to kind of check and see how things are doing, he's back in his slacks or khakis, white button down and blazer. And we're told as we're going into the hospital, he calls one of his friends and also an alum of UVA and a doctor. And he says, make sure you tell them who you are. And what that means is where you went to school, where you work, that you are full-time faculty at the University of Virginia. 
And we have to find ways to slide that in, right? You don't actually walk in and say, I'm a professor, make way. But you have to find smart ways to put that in there. And I saw it when I would go in as a stay-at-home mom, you know, of my daughter. There's a point in the book where I take her in and another doctor, not our regular pediatrician, says, you know, you gave her Tylenol for a fever of whatever it was, 100, 101. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you know, we don't give Tylenol until it's, you know, 102. Where did you say you live again? And I'm like, Charlottesville is a small college town. So I can't, for the life of me, I only have one conclusion, you know, when it comes to why would he ask where I live? You have to bring your receipts. I had been, one of my kids has had some ongoing medical stuff and I always bring my laptop with everything because you never know when you're going to get the doctor like, excuse me, where did you get that diagnosis? And I'm like, Boston Children's Hospital. (laughs) You have to be ready, but then not be too mad or they'll shut down on you. It's hard. Exactly. We just had someone ask recently, they took a look at TOFs's. Now we're at seven years of receipts. And they were like, why hasn't anybody checked them for diabetes? Like he should have this test and then that'll solve everything. And I'm like, either you're a genius or there's a reason why he hasn't been diagnosed with diabetes. <laughs> I want to talk about the female part of this because you tell a story that in the book that kind of makes my blood boil because I recognize it so well. You're at the emergency room. I think it's in this original first day. And you just had this officious sort of power tripping like guy at the desk. They're trying to rush your kid back. And this person is like, excuse me, I'm not done. You know, mother's maiden name, like doing that nonsense and power tripping on like keeping you at the desk. And you say, I wrote this down because I liked it so much. You become a mother whose desire to appear normal, to seem rational, to be liked by this person weakened your ability to care for your son in this moment. I totally identified with that so clearly. Yeah, I really it's one of those things about myself. I try to have some grace and not completely, you know, just... (laughs) crumble in shame. But it's one of those things I don't love about like, if can I be honest, I don't love that about myself Mm -hmm. is that I really have to like, push back to protect myself and to protect my kids. I am more likely to sort of acquiesce and say, what do you need? Let me do everything well. Right? I think what was difficult about that moment is that he was like, from what I could tell, a black guy sitting in that role. And I know how things are in Charlottesville and these college towns. And so it's like, he's probably having a rotten day. Like he doesn't want to be here. And, you know, I could handle that most days, but this time, like my kid's life could be on the line. And so like, yes, am I annoyed with him? Sure. But like, am I more upset with myself that this wasn't a time where I could say, you know what, you'll get that information later. I'm going to follow this guy back. Yeah. And I also I think there's pushback to the pushback, which is also that there's a lot of roles in our lives as women and differently as a black woman where you needed to be in that role to survive a different situation. Like these things don't happen in a vacuum in the same way that this man who you're confronting is surviving his day for through his operating system and that it's important to understand like these operating systems all come from a place so that my like head tilt, hey, I don't mean to bother you, but I would just love it if you didn't, you know, attack me and and just fill out this form, whatever my operating system is, I carry with me. And then you find yourself in other situations where suddenly that operating system is exactly what you don't need. And it's Mm. difficult. I had this when I was in labor with my first, I'd been in labor for about 45 minutes. And they all say, don't go to the hospital, don't go to 
the hospital to kick you out. My mother finally grabbed my husband by the shoulder and said, she better go. You take her right now. And he's like, well, you know, they told us. And thank God my mom's (laughs) Irish lady. She was like, in the car, now get. And I went and I ran into this kind of clerk. You know, we need your form. And I said, I'm not feeling well. I have to sit down. Calm down. And I did pay her back by vomiting right into her garbage can several times. And she got sick of me and they took me back. And again, you're not having a baby. And they finally lifted the sheet and there was like a head between my legs. Like I was having the baby at the desk with her. But I didn't have the wherewithal within myself to say like everyone out of I know that there's a baby coming out of my body right now. I was still busy trying to be the patient who got the gold star for being the most polite on my way in. Right. And it's hard when those things bump up against each other. Yeah. I like how you said that operating systems. We're talking to Taylor Harris. She's the author of This Boy We Made. And we'll be right back. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. (laughs) But all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. So Taylor, tell us what's next. I mean, the blood work, you have to wait two weeks. Then what? You have all the answers and it's all good and you get a diagnosis and (laughs) the end? Everybody gets a puppy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The book is fiction. No. um, So basically, I think that's what's going to happen, right? I mean, if he has ketotic hypoglycemia, you give him some goldfish and a smoothie at night and you're on your way. He turns nine years old, 10 years old. He grows out of it blip on the radar. Nobody really cares that much. We get a call a couple of weeks later from Dr. Quillian, who is sort of our great main pediatrician. She sort of becomes the quarterback of all of this. And she says, you know, that blood work they sent out to like the Mayo Clinic, you know, it's abnormal. He's got this thing called carnitine. And in that moment, I'm like, 
creatine? Like, is that what the the boys in high school took? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> there's this level called carnitine, and it's low. And basically, what happened? Whatever caused his blood sugar to crash? It's almost like a domino effect. I mean, there were just all these levels in his body that were off, and so really, that's the start. You know, then we have to chase this carnitine number. There's another enzyme level that's off to this day. I think this is an okay spoiler alert. We don't know why this one enzyme level is off sometimes. And so it's like the more you dig and the more you go to genetics, the more you don't have answers. And then what happens is once a kid turns two, they really start looking at growth. Like, is his stature a problem? Um, and he had started falling off the growth curve. Where's his speech? Is he delayed? He had speech delays. His gross motor was always sort of borderline. So he walked right at, I think, about 17 months. And he crawled at a year. And Tofs is such a charismatic type of kid that he crawled at his first birthday party when his friends from the library story time came through the door. (laughs) And so I was like, (laughs) warmer at heart. Right. He was like, he's greeting them. He's fine. And so there are all these moments. Tofs is so funny and he would make these funny faces and he had impeccable rhythm that I was like, he's way too witty and with it for anything sort of to be going on cognitively. Like he's with us. But then as we sort of start, as he gets older, You'd call his name. He wouldn't always respond. So then, you know, you got to check his hearing. Like I said, it was funny and cute, but he would call me babe. He didn't Mm -hmm. always have a name for people around him, didn't have a name for his sister. He would, you know, wake up from a nap and start sort of shaking. So there's just all these different, you know, things, these clues that we started you know, trying to put together. And I remember his pediatrician saying, you know, it might take a year or two, but we're going to figure this out. And that's where we lived for a long time, sort of give it time, see all the specialists, do all the referrals, and somebody will get to the bottom of this. And there's the living in in the between, as you say, like, so that's where you live, you're going to have answers. Maybe that's dangled before you, there's a possibility that you don't or won't ever. And then you have to be to make your peace with that as a parent. Yeah. What do you do sort of if, you know, I talk about liminality and sort of living in the not yet. And what do you do if it's not the doctor coming to save the day, like coming with the answer? What do you do if you sort of are ready to cross the threshold and you think on the other side will be the great big answer? And it's really just more questions. And do mm. you want to do more tests? <laughs> and that's sort of where we we live, you know, if I take him to CHOP in Philly, they'll run more tests because there's still so much we don't know. I think, again, this is an okay spoiler. Tofs has been diagnosed with epilepsy. He has seizures. And it's just been so on the nose. We took him to CHOP and the neurologist says he has epilepsy, but he doesn't fit into a specific like subtype of epilepsy. <laughs> Mm. And you just want to be like, have you read the book? Um, This is almost funny, but it's not, you know. (laughs) You become the expert on your kids, but also you're looking to experts. You end up in this, I like the word liminal space, where you're just sort of in the fog a lot of the time. And I wonder how has it shaped your anxiety as we were talking about in the beginning, like in terms of you have the 
flash moments of the superpower, but in general, do you feel like it has lessened your anxiety to kind of be, accept the unknowingness of this space? That's a really great question. I don't know if it's lessened it. I would say it's helped me recognize it more and like be a little bit more kind to myself about it. I talk in the book about being a Christian and sort of in the early days of when I, you know, was really gung ho. Some of it was about like, if I have enough faith, sort of the fear will go down, right? Like if you have enough love for God, then like you won't have as much fear. Like you're doing something wrong if you have pathological fear. And this has taught me that like, it's not always like getting rid of something, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons I love Kate Bowler so much. Oh, we had her on the podcast. She's incredible. What? You asked her first. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love Kate and I'll actually get to talk to her soon too. You know, there's no cure for being human. This isn't about always ridding yourself or your body of things. And I think Kate would understand too. Like, I actually would love to get rid of my anxiety. Like I have no sort of emotional ties to it as far as like, oh, it makes me a more creative person. I actually would be okay. But I think I'm going to live and die with anxiety. And so sort of uh, recognizing that and being kind to myself for this thing that has been with me probably since I was born. I think mothering toasts has helped me to see that there are things that we'd like to get rid of, like his seizures that we might not. Kate talks about that so beautifully, the gift of accepting this not knowing, getting rid of the, you talk about in the book, right? Like, well, we want to know, like, what's the diagnosis? How does it work out? And you're like, well, we'd like to know that as well, wouldn't we? (laughs) And I think, and I, I always am careful because I think this can become very facile when you have kids who have different levels of challenges in their diagnoses and kids who are neurotypical, whatever that means, or health typical, whatever that looks like, but that there is a commonality of this journey of parenting that is a lot of not knowing. There is no door that you open and the expert is like, your child will go to Harvard if you do these eight things. Like, And I think a lot of us go into this experience with the expectation that there's a road and a path and signs that we have to follow to take the right path. And that for all of us, whether it's this extraordinary medical journey that you've been on, Kate's journey with her own cancer diagnosis, that being in this fog of not knowing is a very, that's part of the experience of being human. And it's very much part of the experience of being a mom. Absolutely. And I think each of you has three kids. Am I Mm -hmm. right about that? And so you see it show up different ways, right? There are ways that I see my daughter taking after me that are difficult, right? I think that she deals with some anxiety and that's hard. Um, And then there are these ways where your expectations are just completely dashed because (laughs) you don't know what to make of this trait or this thing that they deal with that is nothing like you, Mm -hmm. you know? In genetics, it's called de novo, right? Where there's a mutation that doesn't come from you or your partner. And part of what was freeing about some of Tosa's blood work was that one of his mutations was de novo. And I could be like, that doesn't come from me. At the same time, you're like, that doesn't come from me. And so what are these expectations we have for our offspring? Like, 
will they look like us or our husband? And sometimes you come up, you know, my youngest is sort of like a perfectly cloned me (laughs) with a little bit more like bravado. And that's fun to see. But there are all these other ways that I think you're right. Every parent experiences of like, oh, I recognize that. And also, where did that come from? So you live to this day with no total clear answers about TOS. And I just want to know, as you live sort of beyond the end of the book, how do you balance your acceptance of not knowing and your faith and the part of you that might still be like, "Mm, maybe we should see this one more doctor run this one more test? How do you balance those? I mean, I think one thing that I do is usually I don't feel as rushed to make decisions. So I think earlier, you know, there's this urgency. You get these results. You've got to see this specialist. In the book, I write about going to see the developmental pediatrician and having to wait on the wait list. And I remember daily sort of being like, when we get to that appointment, when we get to that appointment, all will be well. I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) After seven years of that, (laughs) now, you know, somebody, like I said, at CHOP will say, hey, he can be in this study. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. But like... You know, there's no rush. Like, I'm still open to digging and finding out and having conversations with other parents and with geneticists. But there's this sense, too, of like, how do we plan? Like, one, how do we enjoy Toph's and all his sparkly glory and his My Little Ponies and, <laughs> you know, how much he loves music and dancing? And how do we look at his future? I mean, I came from a family where you study, you get the good grades you go to grad school, you know, and that's sort of how you make your life. And when I look at TOEFs, who does well in school, but, you know, it takes him longer to complete tasks. He's bored sometimes, you know, we're all bored in school. But I just think he's the type of person who sometimes I'm like, if he just had like an apprenticeship, like if he found something he really wanted to do, like be a DJ, and he like toured with somebody and learned all of the skills, like, I just have different thoughts now about education and what we need and what makes a life, quote unquote, successful. Amy's favorite expression on the podcast is the pain is in the gap. And I think that that for me with my kid who, you know, struggles in certain areas, I come from a similar kind of family and like this is the path that we're on and realizing that I was causing myself a lot of pain by only looking at that gap and like, but the path is this. And if the path is another path, that that's not right. And that's not. But then I look at my child and I think this is a happy kid who is thriving and I am causing myself and and other people to some degree, some of this pain and that I just need to get on this other path and stop focusing on the gap. And I think that that's a a takeaway for everybody. Sure. And also, I think helpful to have parents and moms like you where I can say, yeah, but are you willing to sit with me in that gap too? Because it's real. And so I think it's that you know, there's this unique voice of the both and of the Mm -hmm. people who are willing to say, you know what, like, you might not need to go to grad school to do what you want. But can I acknowledge for a minute that I thought my life would be this way? (laughs) And it's not. 
<laughs> right. That's such a good point because what I was saying tilted towards the thing of like, this path is happiness and the other path, it would let go of it. And like, that's right. There is pain in that gap, but the gap is kind of where you are a lot of your life. It doesn't close the gap. Right. <laughs> that's a really smart point. It's not get on this path because you'll be happier than this path. It's that you're going to spend a lot of time in that liminal space and that there's joy and pain within there. So much. Taylor's book is This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood genetics and facing the unknown. It is so beautifully written. It's the kind of book you cannot put down. And I just think that you will all love this book. Taylor, tell us where we can find you and, and your writing. Sure. The easiest way is my website, taylorharris.com. My secret is my middle name is Alexis. So you can find me there. The other Taylor Harris is some sort of like horse insurance company. So you might not want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) If you see horses, get out. That's you're in the wrong spot. You've taken a wrong turn. And also on Twitter at T Harris, H-U-R-R-I-S, because that's what my little first graders used to call me, Mrs. Harris. And also I am a huge fan of ice cream. So if you're on Instagram, you can find me at riding for ice cream. And I guess that's my most professional name. (laughs) Love it. Perfect. Everyone, please check out this book. And Taylor, it was wonderful talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Taylor. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now, Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.